0: Great innovation work is really driven by really smart trial and error. I mean, if you look at you know great idea companies like an IDEO or somebody like that, they really espouse that whole ethos. You know, great innovation work comes from experimentation, doing things over and over again with a stated goal or objective of what you're trying to get to. You're listening to Retail Remix. Your inside access to candid conversations with the people
1: shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Retail Remix. I'm Alicia Esposito, and I've had the chance to sit down recently with Chris Walton, the co CEO of OmniTalk. We both uh, had a lot of fun chatting, uh, navigating our new realities, working from home with our families and spouses uh, in the background. Um, But we really dug deep into some of the new trends and new realities that have emerged as a result of COVID-19. We actually spoke around the end of March, um, and this podcast is coming out in end of April. So needless to say, uh, a lot has likely happened since we had the chance to sit down and chat, but I think a lot of the trends, a lot of the examples and uh, takeaways are still very much relevant. Chris has a lot of experience in retail, not just commentating on it, but as serving as an executive for a a number of retail brands. So he had a lot of great insights to share. So I hope you enjoy our conversation and get some pointed insights and even takeaways that you can apply to your business. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. So you obviously have a very deep history in retail, starting your career at Gap and eventually holding numerous positions at Target but a lot of people know you as the VP of the retailer store the future project and that's undeniably a really hot button topic now over the past few years even so to start off our conversation i thought we would take a step back from that experience and basically ask you you know what were your key learnings from that experience and how has that really driven your work that you're doing today
0: that's a great question i absolutely love talking about that experience i think the first thing the first thing i always let people know is it was the best literally the best job I ever had. Target came to me, uh, came to my current business partner too, and they said to both of us, based on your experience, 5 to 10 years out, why are people still coming to physical stores to shop? And how would you conceive of the Target brand in trying to answer that question? So the great part was we got to spend literally 2 years doing concept work on what Target's basically futuristic store design would look like 5 to 10 years out. Learned a ton... It was an amazing experience. And quite honestly, it's what inspires me today. So about two years ago, my business partner and I went out on our own, got the entrepreneurial bug, and we started our own blog, OmniTalk, omniTalk.blog. And essentially what we do there is all we do is write and talk about the future of retail. So I, I write for Forbes on that subject about four or five times a month. We do weekly podcasts. We do a lot of video interviews and spotlights of great companies. And all of that work was really founded and predicated upon the experience that we had at Target, running Target Store, the Future Project. What I learned was probably really twofold. I think what I learned over that period of time was that, you know, number one, innovation matters. You have to be devoted to innovation. It has to be a discipline within your organization. And I think, unfortunately, or you know, fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, as you look at the backdrop of everything that's happening with coronavirus, I think that you're seeing the companies that have had that in their DNA or in their in their ethos over the past, say, five to 10 years, relatively speaking, they're doing a little bit better given the dynamics that are at play because the innovation has made them more flexible and more able to adjust to changing consumer expectations, not just prior to the virus, but especially now that the virus you know, is here and something that is formidable and that we have to deal with. And then the second piece, too, is that I think having had that experience, there are definitely clearly right and wrong ways about which or by which a company should approach innovation, how the leadership gets right around it, how you create successful teams, how you govern it. All those things matter if you want to have success in the long run.
1: Great. Yeah. And I think, you know, seeing some of the recent use cases and, and examples of innovation, Target being one of them, a lot of grocers, Walgreens, of course, you know, mm-hmm. really looking at their existing business models and saying, OK, well, what needs to adapt in order to serve their customer in a way that is needed today. And and I think it's, it's a really interesting fork in the road because they adapted because they needed to, right? There was no choice. It wasn't a matter right. of, oh, well, if we want to increase sales or if we want loyalty, the if, right? Like there was a, right. there's no way around it. We need to adapt in order to keep our doors open, to keep our employees. And we're definitely seeing retailers go in the opposite direction as well. So, I mean, looking at this example, I mean, obviously this is a very severe case of, of innovation, again, out of that dire need to do so. But looking at those cases where it was a scenario of how can we be more relevant in our customers' lives? How can we better serve them in the context of normal life, right? Because this what's happening now is by no means the status quo. But hmm. let's dig into those pillars or layers to innovation that you say matter so much. So the teams, you know, how innovation is handled from the top down. I mean, where were or are still most of the gaps? Because I'm thinking through the lens of like when the curve starts to flatten and, you know, things start to reopen. I mean, are, what's going to prevent us from going back to the status quo?
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, and there's even some of the examples you you shared there, say Walgreens, I think is even a good one to potentially double click into. But, you know, the whole statement there reminds me, I saw this on social, or actually a, a buddy of mine texted me last night, a, a guy who worked for me on the store future at target. He's now at CBS. He texted me this picture of, was a survey? It said what what forced innovation at your company? Was it the CEO, the CIO, or COVID nineteen? And uh, you know, resoundingly, the checkbox was COVID nineteen. I saw
1: that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, I think that is an important context. But at the end of the day, yes, it's going to speed the pace up of everything that we're seeing. And I think what you're honestly seeing right now is you're just seeing that companies that had strong business models, and most of the time, as we said, that were founded in innovation, are still finding ways to, I don't want to say thrive, but still do what they need to do given the current environment whereas others where maybe that innovation was more stagnant or the business model wasn't as strong it's just exposing where those weaknesses were more clearly and much faster than probably otherwise would have happened but ultimately it probably would have still happened in the long run too uh, i look at the department stores or say mall based retail for examples there but getting back to your point in terms of innovation and what the keys are i think you know what successful innovation to me comes down to first and foremost is it's got to have leadership buy-in from the ceo the C-suite, and the entire board of directors. It can't be trapped, number one, in, in legacy thinking. I think that's what gets people so much. you know. And that's the mistaken belief that what got you here is still going to get you there, despite the fact that there's so much changing outside in the world around you. Now, that's hard. It's easier. It seems really straightforward, but it's actually much harder said than done because there's two elements at play. You've got first psychology, which... Generally speaking, the older we are and the more accustomed we are to doing things a certain way, the harder it is for us to do something new. And so when you look at retail companies and who they're led by, take gender out of the equation, most of the time, they're people in their 50s or 60s, especially the much larger scale retailers. Well, those people grew up doing retail a certain way. They grew up most of the time doing retail before e-commerce. And so having the mental ability to adapt and think about things, given all the new dynamics that are changing, is just really tough. It's just harder for them to do. And then the other part is you've got a seniority factor here too, where you know, are you going to take the risk? Are you going to be the one in the last five to 10 years, the twilight of your career to try to do something that's bold and different, that's maybe good for the company 20 to 30 years out, but may require a short-term hit or may require an investment that seems a little crazy at first, but down the road will pay off. Those are two really hard challenges for people to overcome. Now, they could be overcome. You know, and the right way there is you've got to have the right frameworks by which you're going to attack the problem. And for me, I always talk about three things, which is any retailer worth its salt should have three bets placed at all times. One, they've always got to be looking to grow the business incrementally. Now, unfortunately, that's what we hear all about in the news media all the time. That's, you know, initiatives that make press releases, they make earnings reports. At the end of the day, they don't fundamentally change how a retailer does what it does. And they are futuristic in the sense that they're different than what came in the past, but they're not fundamentally new. They're not fundamentally true store of the future ideas. Those might be things like buy online, pick up in store, new private label brand introductions, things of that nature. But those are very different from the other two places where bets need to be made. And that's one, which is concept work. And right now, fortunately, before all this started, there was a lot of great concept work starting to happen. You know, you go back three to five years ago, you could count on one hand the number of successful concept stores that were out in the market, but now you're seeing them from the likes of Starbucks, Amazon, Sam's Club, Walmart, and that type of work matters. And that's where you're doing live experimentation out in front of consumers, almost, you know, without a safety net. Some of what you do might fail. Some of it might succeed but it's more akin to what you'd find in the concept car with the auto industry. The idea is to show what's the possible. And retailers have to put money towards that in terms of what they're doing for innovation. And then last but not least, you have actually true story of the future ideas, which is you take the lessons from the incremental work and the concept work, and you create actual new ideas. And those are really hard to come by, not surprisingly, but there's great examples out there like a Warby Parker, Amazon Go, Restoration Hardware's new mega stores. But you've got to be thinking within that framework because all those different tracks require different amounts of money. And most importantly, all those different tracks also require different types of people to do the work. Who's good at incremental innovation? Well, probably the people that have been with your company for a really long time and understand how to operationally squeeze the lemon to get as much juice out of it as possible. But who are the people best at concept work? It's definitely not those people. And quite frankly, those people probably shouldn't even be weighing in on what the concept work ideas are because they're only going to restrain them in terms of their thinking because they're going to bring everything they understand about how the current business model works and try to adapt that and hold back what a future business model could be.
1: Got it. There's a lot to unpack there. So would you say that for you know the retailers listening right now that It's a matter of taking a phased crawl, walk, run approach, so to speak. So like the incremental to the concept work to full-on store of the future. If ultimately store of the future is where they want to get to, is it something that you kind of build upon over time? Or is it possible to say, no, this is our vision. This is what we want to do. And we just have to reverse orchestrate and get all of the right people. You know, make sure we have the budget. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out like what – and I know it's not one size fits all, but is there like a recommended stage or process?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say it's nuance. I think you know you hear that phrase a lot: walk, crawl, run. I think that's right, but it should be walk, crawl, run within each of those tracks I just described.
1: Interesting. Okay. So you
0: should you should always be taking that approach within each one. The better way to think about it, in my mind, though, is that if you just step back, you know, as you said before. It's more as a portfolio. It's more as an investment portfolio of various options across those three tracks. You know, so every year as a CEO, as a board, you've got to come in and say, "Okay, here's how much money we're putting to each of those tracks based on the relative strength of where our business model is. And then within each of those tracks and the projects that we greenlight, we're taking a walk crawl, run approach to see which of them are best going to work over time. And from there, we'll develop the time horizons by which we think we can accomplish things. That's the right way to do things. When I was running the Story of the Future for Target, a buddy of mine made a really great point. He said, and he was ex-Amazon, he said, you know, the key with innovation work is you've just got to be comfortable with this is how much money you're going to lose. And so for that portion of the portfolio, that portion of the track, you're doing it not in the sense that you know that there's going to be a payout. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're doing it right, there should be. But at the end of the day, it's almost an investment in education for you as in a company to stay up to speed on how things are changing and what you need to do as a result. But holding to that amount of investment each and every year based on what your business model can handle so that you can be successful in the long run.
1: Got it. So going back to your point around you know, top-down support, getting it from the board, getting it from executive leadership, is that note of this is how many dollars we're going to lose. Is that what kind of sours the taste of innovation for so so many leadership teams? Or what are the barriers to entry, I, I guess, is really the question. Is it because so many boards and, you know, C-suites are still so focused on historical data, just data-driven, whereas, you know, innovation in and of itself is largely conceptual, a bit more creative, and, and seeing those actual returns... Takes time, and if so, I mean, what what changes require to unlearn that way of looking at things?
0: Yeah, I think you said it really well. I think you know, it's a it's a couple factors. Great innovation work is really driven by really smart trial and error. I mean, if you look at you know great idea companies like an Ideo or somebody like that, they really espouse that whole ethos. Great innovation work comes from experimentation, doing things over and over again with a stated goal or objective of what you're trying to get to. And so I think when you look at, as I mentioned before, the time horizons and then also what people have been comfortable psychologically doing or what they understand, when you're looking at three to five year windows or you're looking at quarterly earnings guidance or even annual earnings guidance, that's an easy place to go and start finding money or cutting budgets or redeploying that money to something else that is more tangible and more short term. But you know, if you're a CEO and you're going to be here for, say, five years, which that's probably a pretty long tenure for most, well, yeah, I want something that's going to show me short term results because that's what's going to move the stock price. Although for the long run, that might not be the best idea for the company. So exactly. Those are the dynamics that are at play here.
1: Got it. One, one final structural question that we can get into some examples and, and trends that sure. you're seeing. I want to go back to the point around people because I think you nailed sure. it. It's it's getting the right people at the table to contribute to the strategy and, and also the execution. And we've seen a few different applications of that, whether it's, you know, hiring an innovation team, building an innovation lab or through partnerships, right? So mm-hmm. do you have a take? I mean, obviously you you helped build something incredible at Target, but do you have a take as far as how to determine what approach is right for the business because I know sometimes you know outsourcing that partnership or you know getting a tech team outside the business sometimes brings that unbiased third party perspective that kind of pushes you right. So how do you determine what what path is right?
0: Yeah, I don't personally necessarily espouse one right approach. Actually, it goes back to I think what you said before in the conversation we we're having just a few minutes ago, which is I think as you're trying to do this, taking a walk, crawl, run approach here is probably the right approach as well. So you know, what's going to work for your company, what's going to work for your brand, what's going to work for the given resource constraints that you have, and trying to put that all in the right context. Now, of course, if you're trying to do true innovation work, I think you have to find people that are 100% curious of mind, because I think that's probably what's going to set them apart. But whatever path you choose, whether it's a partner, whether it's internal, whether it's innovation lab, I think the key thing that companies often get wrong is, you've got to allow them to run and operate like entrepreneurs. You know, that was what I found personally too. And what I found now being an entrepreneur for almost three years is you've got to keep them hungry. You've got to keep them incented in the same way. But oftentimes what you'll find with some of these big corporate projects, the budgets are far more overblown than they need to be. You could do a lot more with less, which is another reason they get in trouble or they end up on the cutting room floor. And that becomes problematic. And then by the same token, there isn't necessarily the upside that everyone can share in the same way that you would as an entrepreneur, which makes you hungrier and makes you probably more competitive to try to go out and find just how big that new idea could be. Because if you think about it, if you're working for a company and you say you're getting paid a salary and it's a decent salary and you got benefits and all that to fall back on, you know that can become problematic too. And I think you've seen some of that sh- those struggles happen with just even some of the recent moves out of Walmart's store innovation, store number eight program, where you can see them going through those types of growing pains too. And, and that was the advice that I did frequently give them in a lot of the writing that I've done, which is, you know, take a more walk, crawl, run approach, as you say, because you don't exactly know where you're going to go yet, but you've got to keep people hungry along the way.
1: Oh, that's great, Chris. So let's dig into some examples because, of course, through your podcast, you're writing for Forbes, you know, all these other touch points that you're using to uh, educate the market. Part of what you do every day is seeing what's happening out there, right? And seeing what the best practices are, who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong. And I'm sure a lot of these examples fall under those different applications of or types of innovation that that we talked about earlier. But I mean what, what are you most excited about right now? I mean, of course, now there there are so many fascinating partnerships and, and examples of innovation now coming coming out as a response to coronavirus. But I mean, even beyond mm-hmm. that, I mean what, what's really piquing your interest and what trends are really rising to the top right now?
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge super geek on all of this, so so stop me because I could probably get into a lot of different directions with this. But uh yeah, with the coronavirus as the backdrop, I think what you're gonna see actually is just a lot of what I'm about to mention is just going to accelerate or the pace is gonna pick up. But the things that I still follow, or I feel like I spend most of my time, let's just, and I would say I read pretty voraciously and write and talk about this stuff a ton. But the number one thing on my mind for sure, day in and day out, is is computer vision. And by computer vision, I mean both in terms of the application for checkout free retail as well as in robotics in-store. So if you're using artificial intelligence and cameras, you know how can you just create better, faster consumer experiences day in and day out? And then the angle for why I'm interested in robotics, too, is how can you use that same technology, put on a robot, robot put it on whatever you want, a drone in the store, and be able to also improve your operations day in and day out and do the things that, quite frankly, just humans aren't able to do day in and day out as objectively and as well as, say, something like a robot or some type of automation could do. So those are two areas I'm following really closely. I think they're going to speed up really quick. I mean, look at checkout-free retail right now. Like, Given the choice, if you had the ability to go into a store and not interact with a human, I think a lot of people would choose that right now, especially if it was also really fast. The other thing I'm looking at pretty hard on a, on a weekly or daily basis is also this concept of hyperlocal micro-fulfillment which is essentially how do you make your supply chains more flexible? There's two schools of thought. Do you put small automated warehouses co-located on store sites? You're seeing a lot of retailers do that. Walmart's doing that. Albertsons and Safeway are doing it. Woolworths down in Australia, Carefor in Europe. But the idea there is, you know, is direct-to-consumer grocery is coming. You therefore don't need as much space in your store. So let's put in tried and true technologies from an automation perspective. Bring the warehouse to the store so to, store, so to speak, so you can pick and pack more efficiently. And then, oh, by the way, you're closer to the consumer from a last mile perspective, too. So I think you're going to see that start to increase pretty significantly here over the next year. I made the prediction that it'll go up three or fourfold in 2020 over the amount of pilot implementations you had in 2019. But I think the numbers are going to blow well past that, especially now given what's going on with the virus. And so that's, that's one area I'm focused on as well. And then lastly, if I was to throw a third one out there, third one out there, I'd probably say just this whole idea of social commerce. I think the interesting dichotomy between physical and digital retail is that physical retail now is almost becoming something that fulfills a need when digital isn't convenient enough. Physical retail, like if you look at Amazon Go or you look at grocery stores now under coronavirus, whether it's pickup in store, shopping in the store, it's about... How do I just get what I need in the most convenient moments in my life when I need them? But it's all about acquisition. Discovery, being inspired by things, isn't so much happening in the physical world. It's actually more happening by way of the digital world and specifically what we're seeing and viewing on social media or in our feeds. And so how that's just radically changing retail, how it's creating new direct relationships with consumers, creating new authorities within the retail space that are in a lot of ways, stronger than retailers have traditionally been. That's another area that I think, as a backdrop, is really interesting to follow. But those would be the three social commerce, hyperlocal fulfillment, and uh, computer vision.
1: Great. Well, we're definitely going to get into social commerce because you can geek out about innovation. I can geek out about <laughs> social commerce all day. So, you know, we'll, we'll go back to that. But first, <laughs> obviously, Retail Touchpoints covers everything around, you know, Omni, around experiential. And it's been interesting to see. The two buckets naturally emerge when we look at, you know, this store of the future concept, or or what does this look like? And I've noticed that it's been the more utility based concept. So think of like the Am- Amazon Go concept, so contactless mm-hmm. payment, contactless fulfillment. Now we're hearing so much about because of Corona, and then of course some interesting applications of oh, how do we make the store more community driven? How do we make it more immersive and and drive people to go to the store as their first point of engagement with a brand and like-minded individuals? And there are some interesting things there, but do you think where we're at today that we're going to start to see more retailers go towards the first bucket, more utility-based, so focusing on Having the tools and the infrastructure to get products to people as quickly and seamlessly as possible is it, or are we kind of at a tipping point there where we're going to start to see the tide shift a little bit?
0: Yeah, it's a really great question. It's gonna, de- I think, it's gonna depend on a lot of factors. I mean, I think the, the, what I usually do when I try to think about the answer to the question is I try to separate things into two camps. If you look at why stores have existed. They've always existed for five key reasons. And, and this is whether they were digital outlets or whether they're physical outlets and, and stores. And I talk about this a lot, but stores have always been a place of inspiration, a place of immediate gratification, a place of convenience. And then the last two points, and I call these out specifically, they've been a place of taction. And by taction, I mean the ability, a place where you could touch and feel products. they were a place you could do all the things that give you an added confidence in making your purchase. And then fifth, the idea that you brought up, which is the experiential aspects, the social aspects of being out in the world, either by yourself or with someone, essentially the idea of creating memories. I think what your question gets to at its root is when you look at those five dimensions, you're splitting those into two camps. The first three that I mentioned, inspiration, immediate gratification, and convenience. Well, to your point, many of those start to fall into the utility bucket or can be done very quickly and easily through technology innovation, specifically digital and social commerce. And then the last two points are what remain, which is how do I make something tactile? How do I play up the physical sensory aspects of physical retail, and also the experiential aspects of that as well? Now, digital and physical can both play into each of those, but essentially there's those two divides. So when you ask me which way it's going, I think what you really have here is, well, unfortunately, because of how powerful digital is, and specifically Amazon, If your product category or business model already lends itself one way, well, quite frankly, table stakes are going to be that you have to keep pace on what all those utilitary aspects of your business are. So whether it's shipping, whether it's contactless payments, whether it's checkout free retail, all those things are going to matter because they're going to continue to be separators of why you go to one place or another out in the physical world. But now if your brand can actually play the other side of that equation, based on what it is, take a Lululemon, for example, then yes, you're going to play up more of those aspects. You know, how do you not only just go and touch and feel the product, but how do you try it on, wear it at a yoga class? How do you become part of a community when you're there? If your brand has the ability to move in that direction, then I think you'll see the right retailers go that way. But how each retailer ultimately decides that is still really up for debate. One great example that I like to share, because people talk about experience all the time, and I think it's actually pretty overblown. And and there's few examples of people actually doing it well. But one example I do like to share is Canada Goose. So Canada Goose came up with at first what I thought was probably the most gimmicky idea in the history of retail, where essentially, they put a freezer box into their store in the Mall of America. It's probably like a 10 by 10 freezer, the same thing you'd find frozen food at a grocery store. And over Black Friday, I went to look at this freezer box, so to speak, and I was ready to write a pretty pithy article about the whole thing. And I went in there, I put the jacket on. And what I noticed was, oh my God, the jacket, first of all, it's super comfortable. And then I go into the freezer room and I'm not cold. And that matters. So when I talk about taxing, about giving confidence in a purchase, I'm in that freezer room. I don't feel cold at all. And I got to tell you, when you live in Minneapolis, and it's negative 10 degrees outside, you have a job to get done, and that's to get a jacket that you know is going to keep you warm. Now, contrast that with every other jacket buying experience I've ever had in the world. Every one of those experiences has always been in a balmy 72 degrees. It's the same temperature that you find in every single other specialty retail outlet in the world. But here, Canada Goose did something different and gave me a different sense of confidence in why I should buy their jacket over another. Now, did I buy one? No. It's still pretty expensive for my budget, but that type of thing matters. And so I bring that back to the point again about who are you as a retailer, what can you do, and which of those angles can you differentiate yourself on, which ones are table stakes, and which ones can really matter in the long run.
1: Got it. So there's there's a whole notion of, of kind of working backwards from what can you do better than anyone else in your not only your competitive set, right? Because it's going far beyond that now. So if in the case of like a Lululemon you know, you're doing, you're providing yoga and workout clothes, you know, workouts are largely community driven and community based do you make people feel like they belong. So it's kind of like working backwards. That, that's a really interesting approach.
0: Exactly. Like I'll give you, I'll give you another good contrast. And Lululemon's a great one for this too, is that ultimately at the end of the day, you have to work backwards because you have to decide what is the product that you're selling? What is the brand that you are as a retailer? And I think what you're seeing in coronavirus is hastening this is that retailers who were strictly about the products on their shelves are the ones that are struggling. Whereas the ones who were about something else, who meant something more to people, they had a different value proposition. Those are the ones that are still continuing to find their way. So think about it. Use these examples like Blockbuster, Toys R Us. Why did they struggle? Well, at the time, they were great. Going back to why stores existed. At the time, they were great. They were video superstores. They were toy superstores. They were the most convenient place we had to acquire products. Why? Because we had no other means to do so. So by default, they were great retailers because they were the most convenient retailers because we had no other options. But the issue there is that once the products on the shelves are no longer enough to drive you into that retail establishment, there's nothing else holding you to that experience or that brand. That's where you start to have problems. And so now think about that in the context of Macy's. And that's why I've been on record as saying, you know, the next decade is going to be really tough for the department stores. What do the department stores sell? Well, they sell products you can find almost anywhere else. What is the reason I go to a Macy's or I go to a department store relative to just buying those things online? It's really hard to answer that question. It's really hard to answer what the Macy's brand is all about, the JCPenney's brand is all about within that context and that's why they're going to continue to struggle and quite frankly with them being anchors to malls that's also why the malls are going to struggle
1: I'm glad you brought malls up because that was my next question for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. obviously obviously in this situation, I mean everything's shut down, right There's no way around it, but we no, right. have had we have been talking about how malls have been struggling. We've seen some glimmers of increased investment in turning the mall into more community driven you know more dimensional so a, a more of a focus on entertainment, restaurants in addition to shopping but I mean what how does this filter out or funnel up into the malls, right? Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to onboard or try and get business from the right brands, right? That right mix of established brands and up and coming DTC brands. But also there are experiential components that they can apply within the mall itself or the mall campus. So, I mean, what have you been keeping tabs on as far as, you know, where the mall is going are we gonna be seeing another setback like we saw like one step forward and now it's gonna be five steps back for them like what's coming up do you think?
0: yeah if anything I mean I think this time is very challenging especially for the malls I'm hoping that what it, I'm actually hoping what it does is it potentially gives at least some breathing room although I think that's gonna be hard for people to kind of say okay how do we just really rethink all of this from the ground up and you know I brought up concept stores before you know akin to the, the auto industry but what is the concept mall? We really haven't seen that yet. That hasn't really been done anywhere. I would say most of the pivots we've seen have been just incremental twists on the old model, you know, maybe more experiential to your point. And that is essentially what is driving people to the mall, you know, in this day and age. But the fascinating thing about the whole mall conversation to me really comes back to this, which is Amazon and really digital in general, it's just a virtual mall. It's a digital mall storefront. It's a marketplace. And you have a number of digital retailers who are basically using it, just like in the 1980s, how physical retailers use malls. You, know, you put up your storefront, Amazon provides a certain amount of infrastructure, and those retailers say, okay, I'll sign up for that and I'll start selling my products through that quote unquote virtual mall. Now, what are some of those things? Well, if you're working with Amazon, depending on how you want to do it, you might get some fulfillment services from them. You run checkout through them. You do all these things through Amazon that make that experience more convenient for your consumers and make your product available to them in a way that it wasn't before. So therefore, the big question for me becomes, okay, how do malls take a page from that and start thinking about that, but thinking about it in the physical world? Great experience design always comes down to three things. It comes down to the blend of the physical architectural design, the technology design, and also the human service design. So when you start thinking about physical places in people's lives, the construct of a mall, well, what is the intersection of those three things in today's day and age? And how do you make it work for all the parties involved? So a couple of questions that I always like to throw out, like, why does every specialty retail store have its own back room at a mall? Is that really a point of differentiation? How does Gap run its back room really matter relative to how Ann Taylor does? It doesn't. Why don't you share those resources? Why don't you pull those resources? We talked about micro-fulfillment before. Why don't you put in tried and true capabilities around how warehouses should operate, co-share that, I almost call it commune fulfillment going back to the 60s, and get some benefits of scale in that. And then, all oh, you can also ship things at a much lower cost than you could before. Why don't you also pull resources together so that you can offer more concierge-type programs across all of the retailers that are in that mall? Why don't you explore a universal point of sale? for whoever's playing into that physical space so that then people can shop from one place to another using the same app, let's say, on their mobile phone, using the same digital storefront type experience. Why can't that store take on its own personality in and of itself as a retailer? And I think that's the fundamental ask that I would have as mall developers are thinking about this from an innovation perspective. How do you start to think more like a retailer? I think that's where you're being challenged to go next which is why are people going to come? What products and services do you need in there? And how do you create the right blend of those three things, the architecture, the human service design element, and technology?
1: I love that because it definitely aligns with I think the evolution of the way consumers live and shop, right? I mean, shopping is Mm -hmm. ever-present now in in our lives. I mean, we have our smartphones. Mm -hmm. We're scrolling through Instagram, which is essentially Mm -hmm. becoming a digital mall in and of itself. And we're not just going to, you know, one retailer or or one brand for everything. We're seeing, okay, well, what are our needs? Which brand, like you said before, is known for addressing my needs? And how can I get the Mm -hmm. most value out of that experience, and that kind mm-hmm. of ties to this whole notion of, you know, the points of influence, right? And, and those right. points, I think, are changing. And it's also fascinating to figure out or identify what those trigger points are that that drive people to act or go to that next stage in their decision-making process. And that kind of ties to this whole notion of social commerce that you brought up before. Because it's not just, you know, putting the shopping cart widget on your social account anymore, right? It's figuring out <laughs> what are those what are those points of influence and how can I have those partnerships, and develop content that maybe starts on social media, but partly extends out to other channels. So would love your take on where this trend is, how it has evolved, and really what brands and retailers need to know about it. Because- you know, Instagram is doing a lot of innovation around it, trying to bring the shopping experience into the platform. So it's inspiration to conversion right there, like boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what, what what do brands need to know in, in that way?
0: Yeah, to me, the number one thing that brands need to know is that the rise of everything you just talked about is changing who the authorities are in the retail landscape. So flashback to when I was coming into retail, you know, over 20 years ago now in the late 90s, and especially before that, the merchants or the buyers were the authority in retail. So I use the examples of Toys R Us, Blockbuster Video, Macy's. Well, those guys held the keys to the kingdom because those were the only places you could get product. And so they were the default experts and what choices they made mattered. Now what you're finding with social media is in, in an essence, social media has disintermediated that role. There are now people that And consumers can get closer to that people trust more to provide the authority and the understanding around why people should buy the products they should buy. And that whole concept to me is incredibly, I think it's incredibly powerful. And it's also incredibly empowering because what it tells you then is that brands are going to be built not from the top down as they traditionally have, but more from the bottoms up based on that one-to-one connection people are going to have with their consumers, And so following what's happening in that space is really interesting. So a couple of things that I always like to share or a couple of examples or anecdotes that I think get your mind going on this is, my favorite example is Glossier. Like look how Glossier started, the beauty brand. It started as a blog. It started as someone, Emily Weiss, just writing about and talking about beauty products day in and day out. She amasses a following on her blog. Next thing she does, she starts selling direct. And then the next iteration in her business model is, okay, how do I continue to open up Channels of distribution for my products. So she's opened a flagship store in New York that does more sales per square foot than Apple. And now she's starting to experiment with new models in terms of how she'll sell her products through Nordstrom. It's a really fascinating way to think about things. Then I kind of spin it on our head based on everything we've just talked about. So, you know, we've talked also about how do you how do you leverage the physical experience to do to do more by way of technology? So One of the fascinating things that we spent a lot of time on, I spent a lot of time on it here in my retail lab in Minneapolis, is what does influence-based retail look like in the physical world? Two years ago, Amazon had a great concept called GH Lab, which was a partnership at the Mall of America with Good Housekeeping. And Good Housekeeping, similar to what I described with Emily Weiss and Glossier in the blog, is essentially a content authority. And What Good Housekeeping did is they set up a store in the mall about 3,000 square feet and they curated the best of the best home furnishings products for the holiday season. And the way you came in and shot that store was you essentially used the Amazon app and anything you saw in that store, you scanned a QR code and you you had it delivered to your house. It was simple and easy. So put that together with everything I described about how malls could change. Now imagine if you had an entire mall set up that was devoted to What products do influencers care about? What products do the authorities care about? And I can just go and shop it. The point of sale is the same for everything. It can be as big or as small, as elaborate as I want it to be. And everything just arrives at my house, to my work, or anywhere I want on my schedule. But I can see in the flesh what the influencers are picking and what they think are literally the most important in the physical world. And all that can be attributed back to them. In terms of the impact that they can have on sales for that brand or even for the own products they wanna sell. The last point I'll make is it might all sound heady, it might sound crazy, but there's been a lot of talk about Toys R Us, it going away. Well, the thing I always like to mention is who's the biggest authority on toys right now? It used to be the buyers, it used to be the merchants of Toys R Us, it used to be the brands, but it's not anymore. Now it's some kid on YouTube named Ryan, Ryan Toys Reviews, a guy that unboxes toys day in and day out on YouTube, and from doing that and getting kids to watch it, the guy makes $23 million a year. That kid could stand up a storefront using today's technology and probably be the biggest retailer in the world for toys if he wanted to be. It's just a question of whether or not they go down that road. But that's how things are going to change. And it's going to take time. I think this is still five to 10 years out. But fundamentally, you're going to see how authority It's positioned in the physical world different than it has in the past.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating space because on one hand, you are seeing those little blips of social influence activity. So he does have his own own line of Toys Now, specialty surprise toys that create Mm -hmm. that unboxing experience, you know, fashion influencers like Chriselle Lim, Amy Song, they have those capsule collections, something Navy as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Like, will they have their own shop and shop? Will, you know, Nordstrom sponsor the creation of like their own boutiques? I mean, it will be interesting to see how it all evolves. But at the same time, we are starting to see because digital is so ever-present and, you know, there are new guidelines around influencer partnerships, you know, the way they Mm -hmm. make their money. Is that going to be a point of tension at all? I mean, are there going to be consumers that you know maybe hold these influencers to a higher or different standards that standard than just say going to the store buying a product. I, I recall you know there being conversations around product quality versus price point for fashion items and you know that type of thing. So how do you see the well you're an influencer and this is what you do. So how can we fully trust you? It ha- is that going to come to play at all, or is it just going to evolve naturally? Do you think? Yeah,
0: I think it'll come into play, but I think more so it'll probably just evolve naturally. I think just like it traditionally has in retail, using the example I did before, you know, who are the brands people trusted the most? Why do people trust them? The same thing will happen in the influencer industry. Who can we rely on the most? Who's accountable for what they do relative to other people? And the key thing will be then just how do you start to bridge this divide where all that influence is happening in the digital world? How do you then bring it into the physical world? Which which when you stop and think about it, it's kind of crazy. You have all these strong, powerful influencers on the digital world in the digital world, where digital sales still represent a much smaller fraction of the overall business. And so if you can actually bring that authority and influence into influencing physical purchases too, that could be pretty powerful. And so once you're able to then bridge that data across that gap, the brands, the retailers, the influencers themselves, whoever is using that, you're going to be able to get a sense pretty quickly, I think, over the long run in terms of where the authorities ultimately lie and with whom consumers trust you know, more than others. So I think that just needs time to play out. I don't I don't think that's a big risk to any degree. Yeah,
1: Chris, well, we we hit on a lot of topics today. Thank you for being <laughs> yeah. so open and going on uh, this, this conversation journey with me. But before we let you go, what I try to do with all of our guests is do a bit of a rapid fire round just to get some hot takes on the projects that you've worked on, you know, what drives you and your work. Of course, you know, what resonates with you as, as someone who monitors the industry so closely. So the only rule, I guess you would say it's a rule, is that you answer as quickly as possible okay a game
0: okay yeah let's do it okay so this sounds awesome all right totally let's do it
1: all right so which retailer and you have to pick only one is really 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 winning an experience right now i know we hit on a lot of different examples but if you had to pick one
0: Uh, i would definitely say lululemon as of right now
1: great best store you've been in over the past year
0: Oh, man. God, there's a lot I like. Uh, I think the coolest thing that I experienced was probably Starbucks' mobile-only order pickup store in New York, just outside of Penn Station. Great. That thing is is pretty amazing.
1: Awesome. What tech do you think will rise to the top in 2020, meaning most retailers or a lot of retailers will, will implement it?
0: I don't know if I'd say tech, but to answer that question, I think what you'll start to see more, I think you're going to see a much faster adoption of contactless payments given everything that's going on in the market right now with coronavirus. Great.
1: Are there any brands, maybe specifically DTC brands, that you think retailers really need to watch right now?
0: I always say Glossier is the number one brand to watch. I think it's just the perfect microcosm for this whole idea of social commerce and how the continued world of retail and brand building is going to play out.
1: Great. What was your favorite project you worked on?
0: Favorite? Pro- oh, man. Um, well, I love the store of the future. But I got to tell you, probably my favorite thing now that I've ever done is try to start up my own retail blog with my partner Ann Mazinga. It's just been a really fun ride. And every day is different. And we get to do something new. But at the end of the day, every single day, we're talking about the thing we love, which is retail and how is it going to change over the next five to 10 years. And uh, that, that keeps us excited. It keeps us inspired. A great mentor said to me once, if you always follow your interests, you'll always be interested. And, and that's the perfect example of that for us.
1: Love that. So to that end, we're all social distancing right now. What's keeping you level? <laughs> What's keeping you sane?
0: <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I should ask advice from you on that one. Um, podcasts like this are, are a good thing. That it's fun to kind of just it's fun to talk to as many people as you can to kind of take your mind off things and to spend time on the subject you love. But you know, most importantly, I think right now, more than anything, it's spending time. With the family, with the wife and the kids, taking those moments out throughout the course of the day to have, you know, kind of special time with them that you probably don't normally have when you're, you know, over at the office or, you know, doing what you're doing on a daily basis. So, you know, that's what keeps me the most sane. And, of course, good Netflix binge every once in a while helps, too.
1: There you go. Well, what are you watching? I have to ask.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I just... (laughs) (laughs) You never know where these things are going to go. I just finished Sex Education. That was great. And now I think I'm going to move into something a little more morbid and dark, which is uh, Ozarks with uh, Jason Bateman. I think that's next on my list.
1: Excellent. It's a good one. New season's available now. And Netflix is yes. not a sponsor, so <laughs> good advertisement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, Chris, Well, exactly. this was a great conversation, and I have to say, I didn't hear any children in the background, so I'm very impressed by that. <laughs> um, no,
0: we'll give them some sweets after this is over there as you a go. treat. Yeah.
1: Well, Chris, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out, talk, talking shop with me, no pun intended, right. and uh, talking about all of the rapidly evolving trends that are happening in retail right now. Is a great conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. I loved it.
1: Great, and, and thanks, everyone out there, for listening. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.